Good morning again. Would you uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? As Advent begins, um, normally we enter into a seasonal mini-series on uh, the first Sunday of Advent to prepare us to celebrate the coming of the Christ child. But this Sunday, we're going to stay in the book of Ephesians for these two first Sundays in order to finish a section of Paul's thought in chapter 4 and to keep a little bit of momentum going. And then on December 16th, with the special service of lessons and carols, we will turn our full attention to the heart of the Christmas season. Um, But this morning in our passage, this is what the Apostle Paul tells the church, how to grow up, how to grow up. Tons of books have been written about church growth. High-flying churches hold conferences every single year and draw church leaders and members and organizers from all across the world to hear the secrets of how they attract six, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people to their weekend worship services. Programs at graduate schools study church growth strategies. Some of these megachurches look like mid-sized malls or convention centers, and people want to know, how do you do it? There's always an audience because, to be honest, the typical ego wants to throw the party that everyone wants to go to. The typical ego wants to launch the startup that becomes the new darling of the tech world, and the typical ego wants to be part of the church that's causing buzz nothing wrong with buzz, but the question is, what does the Bible say about about how the church should grow? Two weeks ago, Steve started answering that question by focusing us on the section that begins in verse 7, and verse 7 tells us that to each follower of Christ, the King, Jesus, has given grace gifts. These aren't grace gifts for salvation. Paul already touched on that earlier in the letter. These are grace gifts for ministry, spiritual gifts, we call them. And the grace gifts that Paul highlights in verse 11 are leaders in the church, five categories. This means that the gift that King Jesus has given to his church for her growth and maturity is not a set of supernatural powers. It's not a stack of -of get-out-of-jail-free cards to avoid Satan's temptations or to avoid suffering The gift that the king in his wisdom has given to us is each other, fellow human beings. Yes, empowered by the Spirit, but the members of the body. And that shouldn't surprise us if we think about that picture that Paul uses to describe the church. Here, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, the physical body our physical bodies, what the Creator gives to each physical body for its health and growth are the parts of the body, cells that reproduce, cells that do specialized things like attack foreign substances, a heart to pump, a liver to filter, skin to protect, a nose to sneeze. Get that stuff out of here. These are all things that God has given the body to protect itself, to grow and pursue health inherent within the body. And so, the same is true of the church of Jesus Christ. And then the question becomes, how do these parts work together for the good of the whole to return glory to the head, the King, who is Jesus? Let's read 
Uh, Again, overlapping part of what Steve read two weeks ago, we will start in verse 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church in Ephesus, speak freshly these words to us that we might grow in unity towards maturity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Two things that will help us walk through this passage this morning. First, one but many. One but many. Um, Again, what Paul says about the church is true about the physical body. That's why he uses this illustration. Everybody can understand it because everybody's got a body. Everyone understands how it functions. And the simple thing that he says, true about both dynamics, realities, is one body, many parts. One body, many parts. There's unity. Everything is connected to the head, whether it's the physical body or the church connected to Jesus, who is the head. Everything uh, has unity, but there's also diversity because not every part is the same. And it makes sense because the head of the church is one God, three persons. Unity in diversity. And that is more important than it may sound because it lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You do not become a Christian by doing the right things, by trying harder, by following the rules. You become a Christian. uh, That process is all about being made new, being renewed with the life of God, and we could add here, being renewed with the unity that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always enjoyed and desire for you to enjoy all the same. So this picture of church growth, unity and diversity, is not something that leaders of the church are alone paying attention to. This is central to every person's pursuit of what it means to live um, eternally in the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The church only grows as each of us trusts in Christ, as each of us receives this new life of God in us, and then develops and matures this unity as members of the church. How to grow up applies to all of us. When Paul challenges the church to live in unity which is pretty much 
uh, what chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 are all about, he also tells us how to do that. And again, he starts with the reality that Jesus the King has distributed grace gifts to His people. What are those? Well, he proceeds down in verse 11 to highlight five gifts to the church. Steve already uh, covered this two weeks ago. And those five gifts are people, specifically leaders. You say, well, I'm not a leader, so this must not apply to me. Not so fast. Because first, remember verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the King has given you something with which to do His work. To each one of us. In Romans chapter 12, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he starts with this, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And then down in verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. That's exactly what we find here in Ephesians chapter 4. If we backed up to see the context, Paul says, live worthy lives of this calling, verse 1, and start with humility, verse 2. And to each person, the king has given grace gifts, verse 7. Everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you may be able to accomplish is a grace gift from God. Grace is undeserved. Grace is favor, blessing from the king. And so whatever he hands out to you, whether it's exactly what you would want or not exactly, you can't brag and you shouldn't complain. The king expects you to gratefully use his gift given to you for his purposes, not for your own benefit, benefit, but for the building up of this body of Christ, which is the church. So, even if Ephesians 4 highlights the leadership people gifts, verse 11, that Jesus gives to the church, every member, every follower of Christ has a role and has Holy Spirit power to enable you to accomplish that role. The leader gifts benefit the whole church not by the leaders doing the ministry, but by the leaders equipping the people for the work of ministry. For what purpose? Verse 13, unity in faith and knowledge and maturity. Next week, we will see what maturity looks like. But this morning, I want us to just camp in verse 12 and spend a little bit of time unpacking this recipe for church growth that Paul gives to us, which is basically leaders equipping God's people. That's where we go secondly. Equipping God's people. As a a church leader, there are a handful of ways I can accomplish ministry, whether that is talking to somebody about their um, skepticism about who Jesus is or leading a Bible study or coming alongside someone as a shepherd um, when they're in a crisis. Whatever the ministry happens to be, there are a few ways I can go about accomplishing the ministry. The simplest approach is what we'll call I do. And it's efficient. 
because I don't need to coordinate with anybody else. I don't need to brief somebody else. Here's the situation. This is what I've done, and, and this is maybe a recommendation of how you can approach it. Um, I, I reach out. I sit. I talk. I pray. I've accomplished the ministry. I do is just about the simplest way to get things done, right? Um, the challenge, though, that's inherent with I do is there's only one me, and there are only 24 hours in the day. And so I do is very limited, especially in a growing church. The, the second approach is the idea behind an apprenticeship, the idea that you want to bring someone along, you want to train the next generation, you want to pass on skills and knowledge and experience, right? And so we will call that I do, you watch. I do, you watch. I'm going to instruct I'm going to um, uh, hold you accountable. I'm going to correct. Um, I'm still doing the ministry, but the additional goal here is to pass on something that I've learned, to train you up. And that's good progress. At some point, we would say, the apprentice needs to make his own furniture. The sous chef needs to prepare her own dish. And so the natural growth is to move to number three, which is, you do, I watch. You do. It's your turn. I'm still there, though. If you forget, if you're at a loss, I can help you out. If you don't know what to say to a hurting, broken person in their crisis, I can offer a word. If you simply need the reassuring presence of your mentor, your coach, that you're doing the right thing, you're heading in the right direction. I can stay there and cheer from the sidelines, but you do, I watch. We're progressing. But even that model is limited because one leader can only give so much attention to one apprentice, and the leader can only be in one place at any given time, right? Ministry growth is limited. So the ultimate goal isn't number four yet, but we're getting close now it becomes, you do. And I'm not golfing. I'm not sitting on the couch watching TV. I'm off to the next person to train up, right? You're equipped when we hit, you do. You can accomplish the task. And soon enough, your job is not merely to stay in number four, you do. You becomes I. And now you're the number one. And your job is to progress down the, the, the pipeline to equip others, to pass on what you've learned, right? That is the only way a church can grow in a healthy manner. And I'm not at all talking about filling seats in a sanctuary. I'm talking about growth in depth of maturity, growth in holiness, growth in trusting Jesus and looking more like Jesus. It is all about growing to maturity, churches reproducing churches. We call that church planting. Leaders reproducing leaders. Followers of Christ reproducing followers of Christ. That's what church growth should look like. Let me share a, a personal and honest word, a little risk here. One of the toughest things about pastoral ministry is the steady stream of disappointment in me. And I don't share that to invite you into a pity party. 
And I'd say first, look, there are plenty of times when I deserve it. I am a sinner saved by grace, emphasis on sinner, and I have all kinds of flaws. I have a few strengths, a lot of weaknesses. My pride, my laziness, my lack of vision can overcome me, and when that happens, I deserve your disappointment, and I'm okay with that weight of leadership on myself. I really am. I know that it uniquely comes to leaders. But what's really draining is that most disappointment comes when people expect their leaders to stay in numbers one and two. I do, or I do, you watch. That's really draining. And I'd rather take your disappointment than change that. Because left unchecked, down that road, what we end up producing through our decisions, through our priorities, through our words, is an incredibly unhealthy church. If, if I were to be content with you expecting me to stay in Numbers 1 and 2, this church is not a vibrant community of faith in one or two generations. It's just not. A church can survive. I would even say a church can thrive for a season on the extraordinary efforts of a leader or a handful of leaders, but not for long, before he collapses in, in exhaustion or looks for relief by going to another church. I see that happen all the time. Or looks for relief through sinful escapes and addictions because he can't handle the pressure. Expecting your pastors to live in numbers one and two is that spectator sport mentality Steve alluded to a couple of weeks ago, right? And it's this professionalization of ministry that spills over from other parts of life, which um, sometimes is natural, but we need to just explicitly realize what's going on and put a stop to it. What do we do in other parts of life? We hire the contractor to fix and to renovate. We hire the accountant to do our taxes. We hire the plumber to fix the drains. We hire the tree surgeon to take care of our backyard. And we expect the pastor to do the work of spiritual care for us. And I say that carefully because, of course, there's an appropriate role that a a pastor, a spiritual shepherd, provides to the flock, right? It's my job to lead in looking at scriptural truth and ensuring that GRC is always focused on the gospel of grace. It's my job to um, preach the gospel every Sunday and to provide leadership on uh, the board of elders, our session. I enjoy one-on-one counseling with uh, a number of you, and I enjoy those um, more intensive, focused shepherding conversations. I love to sit with you and hear what's going on in your lives so I can pray for you and support you. And that stuff on the ground is such an integral part of pastoral leadership that I've said to some who have asked me, should you be giving things up? I'll never give that stuff up because then I'm, I'm speaking to a congregation that I don't really know well. I, I'm not saying I, I should live in a bubble I'm not saying these tasks are not my job, 
but you have a critical role to play in the drama of salvation as God is orchestrating it all, as Jesus the King distributes grace gifts, as the Holy Spirit is the power in those grace gifts for each one of us to accomplish the common good of the kingdom. Let me poke a little harder and suggest one diagnostic test that I suspect is pretty accurate. If you come to services and you don't sing, and you don't open your mouth to participate in the prayer of confession or the, uh, the other calls to worship, the, these responsive things, is that a sign that you see the work of the church as I do, or Carl and Paola and the team do, and you watch? That's a spectator sport dynamic that we have to press, push back on firmly and say, no, that is not the way of the kingdom. That is not the health of the body. The way we might function in other parts of life cannot intrude into the sanctuary of the king, into the functioning of this spiritual organism that is the church. It's so very different. When you hear a call to arms for prayer, for giving, for serving, do you assume that somebody else is going to do that? That Steve doing the announcements is not talking to you. Somebody will bring that box of love. Somebody will drive that family to church. Somebody will offer to um, help out in the nursery. Somebody else will do that, and it's only feeding the I do, you watch. No church can grow. No church can maintain health. No church will survive if that mentality lasts. Here's one effective way to measure healthy spiritual leadership. If I get hit by a truck, does GRC continue to survive? I I, I shouldn't say survive, thrive. If I get hit by a truck, does GRC thrive? If not, unequivocally, I have failed as a leader. Because I have not done what Ephesians 4.12 says, equip the work of the people for the work of ministry. Uh, on the other hand, if I get hit by a truck, GRC has a really long time of mourning, tears. You'd really miss me terribly, wouldn't you? Um, let's assume that's done, okay? Um, and if after that period, GRC is doing just fine, That would be a sign of healthy spiritual leadership. This might sound weird, but do you know what I'd love to hear as disappointment in me? Can I share that with you? It's not, I can't believe you forgot my name. I can't believe you didn't drop everything to minister to me. Because this other person was not good enough. You needed to do it, Peter. I can't believe you took so long to schedule counseling with me. It's not that. Here's the disappointment in me that I would love to hear. And quite frankly, in 17 years of ordained ministry, I'm not sure I've heard it enough to fill one hand in counting. This is the disappointment I would love to hear from the people of God. Pastor, 
I need you to equip me more to minister the gospel alongside you. That would be praiseworthy encouragement because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying the church should be doing. Pastor, I need you to be equipping me. I don't know what you're doing. I'm sure it's important. I need your equipping so I can do the work of ministry that you're doing so you can do other things. That's the recipe for church growth, people. Nothing less. Um, by my count, some of them can correct me, but yesterday's sponsor family event, uh, we invited 16 families here and threw a big party for them. By my count, that was the 10th anniversary of Sponsor Family because it started in 2009 back in the warehouse in Teaneck. And I remember that first year showing up early as I was instructed and walking around and talking to the organizers, mostly deacons and deaconesses, and marveling at what had been planned for our guests to come into the church and experience there was a masseuse and a nail salon for the moms. There was nursery care for all the little ones. There were games and crafts for the uh, elementary school-age kids to run around and have a blast with older mentors to watch over them, to ensure that they were having a grand old time. There was a feast planned even the thoughtfulness of a meal to take home in a bag. And still the most moving thought of all was the thought that these families would probably go home with their first ever professional portrait in a frame. That's my family. So many of these families have never even thought of paying money for a professional photographer in a studio to take pictures and then order the package that's always so much more expensive than you think. I remember walking around thinking, the king has distributed grace gifts to his people. The king has raised up servant leaders from within. And this is, I think, largely not a selfish thought I had nothing to do with it. That was the church growth recipe cherry on top because the pastor showed up as he was instructed and had a role to play as he was told. And I was not needed. The people of God did this. I'll add a little secret. Yesterday's 10th anniversary, um, I only stayed for about 45 minutes. I came to meet the families, greeted them each at their tables, uh, tried to encourage as many of our GRC people as I could, sacrificially investing time, serving others, looking to their needs, and knowing that I couldn't delegate the sermon or leading the congregational meeting, and knowing that other leaders were in plenty, I left. Can you see that there's something good about that? Was that a sign that the pastor didn't feel that this ministry sponsor family, this biggest outreach of the year, was that a sign that the pastor didn't feel like it was an important enough thing for him to give his time to? 
Oh, but that's the way an unhealthy church that ignores Ephesians 4 tends to think. But the maturing, according to Ephesians 4 church, thinks instead, we got this, pastor. Fair winds and following seas, we have the watch, the Navy said to George H.W. Bush. We got this, pastor. You've got the sermon. You've got the congregational meeting. We got this. Let's all do what we're supposed to do. Because, verse 16, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Praise be to the King who loves us enough to distribute to each, yes, differing grace gifts, diversity, but all that we might work together in unity to honor the King who is worthy. Let's pray. Lord God, rebuke us when we think that there's some strategy for growing the church that doesn't align with Scripture. You've given us everything we need. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You equip us. And yes, you call us to arms. You call us to lives of sacrificial service because our greatest fulfillment comes not from living for ourselves, but living for you, Lord God, and how you return blessing to us as your people, to you be united one another on this common mission, and then to be united with you in Christ for eternity. We marvel at that. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.